When I was a freshman at the University of Illinois studying landscape architecture, I had to take 18 hours of general elective courses. Thinking it would be a good idea to round out my education, I enrolled in Finance 150. It met at 8 o'clock on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. No one told me you never enroll for 8 o'clock as a freshman. But I was dutiful. I am a rule keeper. Uh, I showed up almost every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday in Alt Guild Hall. Uh, but try as I might, I could not grasp the concepts taught in that class. I really tried. I mean, I, I read the textbook. I went to the discussion group on Tuesday, Thursday. I attempted my homework, but my brain just didn't work that way. And the professor may as well have been speaking in a foreign language. Uh, I received my lowest grade in four years of study towards my bachelor's uh, at the university in that Finance 150 class. I just didn't get it. Now, today we're continuing our church's uh, second 40-day adventure following the radical Jesus, and we're going to see that Jesus' disciples just didn't get it as he tried to show and tell them what it meant for the kingdom of God to be at hand, as well as his passion that was soon to follow in Jerusalem. We're in a life-changing season of growth that coincides with the historic observation of Lent. We'll celebrate its culmination on Easter Sunday. Our expectations are rooted in three cornerstone prayers for ourselves and our family, uh, for our five friends that are unchurched who need to know God's touch of love and mercy, and then thirdly, for our church family and the communities that are represented here. We're studying through the entire Gospel of Mark, reading two chapters a week, this week chapters 9 and 10, in anticipation of our uh, message this morning that I've titled, They Still Didn't Get It. And lastly, many of us are undergirding our 40-day adventure with some kind of a prayer and fasting, and I just want to bless and encourage you for these intentional and deliberate acts of sacrifice. There's only two weeks to go, so hang in there. Let's pray together. Lord, at the very start of this brand new week, we, we do say thank you. Thank you for life. Thank you for breath. Thank you for soundness of mind, health, uh, healthy enough bodies that enable us to gather together. And we pray that this act of gathering together to Commit uh, our lives to you again is is a token that we want our full life to count for you. We want it to matter. And so in these acts of worship and teaching and giving and praying and connecting with one another, we pray that they would all collectively uh, communicate that we love you and we want your kingdom to come and our lives to count. We welcome your powerful presence here among us and right next door in Vineyard Kids as well. You know, Lord, better than we do ourselves what we need. So come, Holy Spirit, is our prayer in your name, Father. Amen. I've read through the Gospel of Mark every year in my daily Bible readings for probably the last 30 years. I've loved this book. It is short. It's action-packed. It's... uh uh, intense, it moves quickly, great sense of accomplishment, 16 chapters, done. Uh, and uh, I've always thought, uh, it, as a rather random collection of snapshots, that Mark is the photographer of the New Testament, and he just takes all these rapid-fire pictures uh, until this year. And now I'm seeing and understanding how Mark strategically selected material 
in order to communicate his two sweeping themes about the radical Jesus. Chapters 1 to 8, Jesus as the warrior king, uh, coming to set the world to right as he ushers in God's kingdom rule and reign, his power, um, right in the middle of this present evil age. And then chapters 9 to 16, Jesus the suffering servant, who goes to Jerusalem to be rejected, to suffer and die, because the kingdom only fully comes through suffering. Now, as I've allowed this year the Gospel of Mark to speak for itself about the radical Jesus, instead of trying to shoehorn it back into my religious and traditional and denominational and flannel graph Jesus, that numbers of my conventional views and historic understandings about things have been really challenged and even turned upside down. So, Mark chapter 8, we've seen it closes uh, with Jesus beginning to prophesy about his upcoming death and resurrection. He's calling his disciples to once again follow him. They're to take up their cross, and he's now going to spend the balance of his time, the remaining eight chapters, unpacking uh, for uh, the disciples the ramifications of what it means to be his disciple, what it means to pick up the cross, deny yourself, and follow him. They're beginning a geographic journey southward towards Jerusalem. This is the goal. And we'll discover that it's actually a road of suffering that they'll be walking with Jesus. Now, in this week's reading, chapters 9 and 10, we see that uh, Jesus suffers the misunderstanding of the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration. He suffers their failure to deliver a demonized boy. He suffers the competition among the twelve as to which of them is the greatest. He suffers the disciples rebuking a man for casting out a demon in Jesus' name. He suffers the Pharisees testing him about marriage and divorce. He suffers the disciples pushing children away. He suffers the rich young ruler rejecting his call to discipleship. He suffers the selfish ambition of the twelve who desire the chief seats of prominence and visibility and authority in what they perceive to be the coming kingdom. Can you begin to see the emerging portrait that Mark is stitching together for us? Jesus as the suffering servant. And much of the suffering that Jesus is going to experience comes because his disciples just didn't get it. Now, as chapter 9 opens, Jesus took his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, up a high mountain. And we read, beginning in verses 2 to 4, As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed, and his clothes became dazzling white, far whiter than any earthly bleach could ever make them. Then Elijah and Moses appeared and began talking with Jesus. Luke's account tells us in chapter 9, verse 29, that the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Now, in the Old Testament, on Mount Sinai, Moses' face became brilliant when he spoke with the Lord face to face and received the Ten Commandments. Here on this mountain, Jesus' face and clothes uh, become bright and shining. Jesus as the second Moses, now talking with Peter, James, and John. Perhaps this is what he actually may have looked like before the incarnation. 
It's what Jesus is really like. Moses and Elijah were there. Now, whether the disciples immediately recognized them or could tell who they were because of the dialogue going between Jesus and the two, Mark doesn't say. But we know that they had form and substance. They were not disembodied spirits in, in, as we might more likely think happens when people die. Luke adds that they talked with Jesus about his exodus. There's that word again, linking him with, with the second Moses. His exodus or his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. Now, Jesus spoke to these representatives of the Old Testament because he's about to fulfill their intention, uh, both in their ministry and their history. Let me explain. You see, it's only in the law, or Moses, that we understand God's moral character, his righteousness, his holiness, and we see our need of sin and forgiveness. And Jesus fulfills the demands of the law as the only person in history who ever could. It's only in the prophets, Elijah, that we see the promise of a Savior who will actually uh, come to lift the sentence of divine judgment that's on all of us and will actually see the promise and hope of a, of a Savior. So Jesus fulfills the promises of the prophets as the Messiah, as the only person in history who could. And so Moses and Elijah point to Jesus and their work, their ministry, their life is fulfilled in him. Neither the Old Testament nor the New Testament stand alone. The three stand together. It's a beautiful and powerful picture. You see, the new is in the old contained. And the old is in the new, or the new is in the old explained. Okay, let me say that again. The old is in the new contained. Explained. Now I'm confused. All right, I'm, I'm not going to go to that. I'm not going to, forget I said that. My point is that the Old Testament represented by Moses and Elijah and the New Testament represented by Jesus are standing together as the three. Neither one stands by themselves. And in a way, we could say it this way. As all of redemptive history is now rushing towards its climax in the person of Jesus, his death and resurrection, the road of suffering on which they walk. So all of our lives find their climax in Jesus. None of us stands alone. You got it? Our lives are, 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 and our life story, uh, the significance and meaning and purpose find their fulfillment when we stand with Jesus. Peter spoke in verse five. Rabbi, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters as memorials. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He said this because he really didn't know what else to say, for they were all terrified. Now, to begin with, you'll notice that Peter calls Jesus rabbi instead of the Christ, the Messiah, which confession he had just made in chapter 8, verse 29, right? You see, in this overwhelming experience it completely shattered every cognitive neuron in Peter, James, and John's brain. They were 
terrified and shuddered. I'd never seen anything like this. We, we see Peter reverting to his old understanding of Jesus as the teacher. Fear, in this sense, always blocks uh, us fully experiencing Jesus as the glorified Christ, experiencing the new revelation that he wants us to, to see. Under pressure, we all have a tendency to kind of fall back to our old positions, our old understandings, our old way of life, the old man, the old woman. That's what happens when we're under pressure. We, we revert to the people that we used to be. Peter did the same thing. He reverts to his former understanding of who Jesus was. And uh, he failed to see the, the incredible new revelation that Jesus was bringing at the moment. So Peter's just babbling. Let's build three booths. It's absurd. Why would... Moses and Elijah want a memorial shelter, a booth like the Israelites constructed when they celebrated the annual Feast of Tabernacles. They lived in these movable, portable tents. Well, fortunately, God the Father intervened in their fear in Peter's mindless blather. And he spoke and he said, this is my dearly loved son. Listen to him. The Father loves the son and he affirms him again. The Father spoke his divine affirmation, his his yes to Jesus at his water baptism prior to the launch of his kingdom ministry. And now the Father speaks his affirmation again. His divine yes comes again as Jesus is preparing to walk the road of divine destiny, the road of suffering, to die in Jerusalem. And I like to think we all need to hear the voice of the Father's affirmation. Yes, we are loved by God. Yes, we are on the right road, especially in seasons of transition and testing. We need the Father's affirmation. Just a couple more thoughts from this incredible story. Have you ever wondered, having maybe read this story before, how Peter, James, and John could possibly have gone through this and then not been totally sure of everything else that Jesus was to say, they heard the audible voice of God, and God said, this is my son, listen to him. And then it was just a short while later that Peter denied him three times, where James fled into the darkness after the first uh, trial. It's only John that ends up at the cross. How is that? Well, before we throw any stones... How many times do we experience a powerful touch from the Holy Spirit, and then we later conclude, oh, that was just kind of my emotions? Or, you know, we hear the Lord speak, or we we see a vision, or we read the Bible and understand a, an insight or a revelation that we never saw before, and we're apt to conclude, oh, that probably really wasn't the Lord, that was just me. We're made up of the same stuff as those three guys. What kind of stuff? Unbelief, fear, doubt, insecurity, hard-heartedness, tradition, religion. Slow to understand. We're we're just dull of heart. We're, We're made up of the same stuff. Another thing I think it's interesting to note is that Jesus reserves some experiences for certain people, but not for you or for me. He selected three, and he left the nine. Why did he do that? 
uh, well, Mark doesn't really give us any insight why, neither actually does any of the other gospel writers. No insight other than that Jesus is the sovereign king, which means he does as he wills. Jesus is never on demand like we discovered last week. And so when you hear about the neat and awesome callings or experiences or blessings that others get and you don't, guess what? You just rejoice and thank Jesus on their behalf. Lastly, you know, it's often said that we may meet God in a special way on the mountain, but we can't stay there. We need to come down from the mountain. That is, we need to come away from spiritual experiences, even powerful ones, and we need to ask God, what does that mean? What do you intend for me to actually change as a result of having encountered you? Verse 10 says that they often asked each other what he meant by rising from the dead. What was that experience all about, Lord? Why did I go through that? Why did you allow me to go through that? Now, we've said that all all through this series that uh, occasionally we're going to pause to do what we call an indicative and imperative exam. If you want to understand the full ball of wax there, just go back and listen to the very first podcast, and I unpack that. I don't want to take all the time today to say, other than occasionally we pause for reflection. We call them I-I exams for indicative imperative. But that's big, so we just shorten it down to I-I exams. Self-reflective questions. And at this point, I stopped to ask, what has Jesus wanted to teach me? And how's he wanted me to change as a result of the experiences I've had with him? Now, in verse 9, Jesus told them not to tell anyone what they'd seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And so they kept it to themselves. And the lesson here is that if we want to follow the radical Jesus, we must personally obey him. Thankfully, Jesus commanded their silence about the transfiguration, and Peter, James, and John actually did keep the matter to themselves. Now, this no doubt would have been very difficult. I mean, if you and I had had such an overwhelming experience, we'd want to shout it out from the mountaintops. (laughs) We'd want to, you know, post it on Facebook, take an Instagram picture. We'd want to write a blog about it, write a book, and go on the speaking circuit. But the disciples... When, when he, when they experienced this, were, were, uh, called by Jesus to not say anything, and so they kept it to themselves. They actually did what he said. So when he speaks, we're to listen and obey, even if we don't fully understand, or if we think, Jesus, you're missing out on a great opportunity here, man. We just do what he says. Disciples, hear and obey. Follow him. You know, it may be that our knowledge about the experience, our understanding, is impartial. You may not understand what God is doing through the divine orchestration of a set of circumstances or a powerful experience you have. You may not get it until years later. The Holy Spirit may even give you at times a prophetic word, a dream, a a specific direction for a decision you're to make or a promise, and you at that moment may have absolutely no idea, no inclination for an application right at the moment. It's just a matter of obeying, trusting that Jesus, as the shepherd, knows how to guide you, even if your rational understanding isn't clear or it's not plain. And so like the three, we need to actually trust the radical Jesus, trust him enough to do what he says. When he commands silence, just be quiet. And then when he tells you to speak, 
we'd better speak. Trust him enough to follow his direction. Now in Mark 9, 14 to 32, Peter, James, and John, and Jesus, are they come down from the mountain, they join the rest of the twelve, where the disciples are arguing with the religious leaders, perhaps catalyzed by their inability to cast a mute and self-destructive spirit out of a young boy who'd been brought to the disciples for healing by his father. After an initial inquiry about the source of the argument, in verse 19, we have one of Jesus' few recorded laments. We read 19. You faithless people, how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? The issue for Jesus was and continues to be faith, or more appropriately, our lack of it, called unbelief. You see, Jesus commended faith. Uh, the woman with the issue of blood, the Syrian Phoenician woman, he encouraged faith. He told Jairus, whose daughter was sick, don't be afraid, just have faith. Jesus expected his disciples to have it. In the feeding of the 5,000, he said, you feed them. And then he rebuked his disciples for a lack of it. You remember in the sinking boat, after having been awakened, he said, don't you have any faith? And so here, Jesus is now lamenting their unbelief, the unbelief of the disciples. And I think he probably laments ours as well. We just don't believe. We just really don't fully trust that Jesus is going to come through for us. We battle a material worldview. We're confident only what we can see and hear and measure, control and taste and measure in a test tube. And, you know... That's just, we think we trust him, we're kind of hopeful, and then when things don't work out right, or we're disappointed, or a need goes unmet, or the sickness goes unhealed, or the prayer that we've prayed goes unanswered, we just kind of collapse in a heap of unbelief. We're just like they are. And so, in my mind, in my life, it's like we're always battling for faith when we follow the radical Jesus. We're always battling for territory and faith. But how do we get it? How does the faith that we have grow? Is by, by, by gritting our teeth and, and, and sheer willpower and determination, by clenching our fists? Is it by, by reading and quoting and claiming the promises of God? Or how do, we, how do we get it? And how does the faith that we have grow? Well, I think it's doing what Jesus models here. He instructed, bring the boy to me. Powerful prophetic invitation. The first thing we have to do for our unbelief to, to shift from, from faithlessness to faith is to come to the person of Jesus. Bring the boy to me. Come to Jesus. No formulas, no religious rituals, no proven techniques. Come to Jesus and trust him, the person of Jesus. Expect him to actually bring his kingdom at the moment. After all, he had just said to the boy's father, anything is possible to someone who believes. And then we pray the prayer that the father immediately, instantly cried out in verse 24. I do believe, but help the part of me that doesn't believe. 
Help me overcome my unbelief. The father certainly had enough faith to bring his son to the disciples to seek healing from Jesus. So it's not like he didn't have any faith at all. He wants his son delivered. He wants his faith to grow. Now he's exclaiming, I want the part of me that doesn't believe to disappear, to shrink, and and for my faith to get larger. And so we come to Jesus with whatever faith we have, and we ask him to overcome our unbelief. The part of us that remains skeptical or rooted in false beliefs or a faulty worldview or disappointments in the past. We come to Jesus with that, and we ask him to overcome our unbelief. And we ask for a release of the Holy Spirit gift of faith. One of the nine charismatic gifts of the Holy Spirit is the gift of faith. A supernatural infusion from God of of ability to trust Him. And so we pray for that gift to happen. For our faith to grow, lastly, we notice in this story that the text teaches us we must pray and fast. If you want your faith to grow, let me explain. You see, when the disciples were in the house and they asked Jesus privately why they couldn't drive out the demon, he had replied to them, this kind only comes out by prayer. Other translations read by prayer and fasting. And so evidently, there is a direct connection between faith and the practice of prayer or prayer and fasting. Direct connection. For faith to grow, we must pray and fast. Obviously, Jesus had been praying and fasting, right? Because the demon left. We've said before that if you want to do all that Jesus did, you got to do all that Jesus does. And so if you want faith that responds in this situation like this, then we must also do what Jesus did, which was pray and fast. Prayer and fasting are the two simplest and most powerful expressions of our humility and our dependence upon the Father. They release the power of God. They, they make the kingdom come, may be visible. In this sense, prayer and fasting are spiritual warfare. A lot of times Christians, especially more charismatic Christians, have thought that spiritual warfare is doing battle with the devil, rebuking the demons, or commanding this or that. When in reality... While there is a a moment in the ministry of God's kingdom where those activities are vital and necessary, in general, spiritual warfare is entered through prayer and fasting. That's what Jesus is teaching. Prayer and fasting are the doorway into the ministry of God's kingdom. So my I-I exam at this point is, what does Jesus see when he looks at my faith? Where does it need to grow? What does he want me to do? In Mark 9, 30 to 32, Jesus and the 12 returned through Capernaum on their way to Jerusalem. And he used this time and another similar opportunity in the 10th chapter, verses 32 to 24, or 34, to further train the 12 about his upcoming death and resurrection. And interestingly, on both occasions, he added a detail that was previously unrevealed here that he would be betrayed. And then later in chapter 10, that after three days, he would rise again. The 12 still just didn't get it. In fact, in verse 32, the text reads, they were astonished or filled with awe. So on the road to Jerusalem, Jesus continued uh, to, to now suffer the inability of the 12 to really listen to him and understand the radical implications of his upcoming death and resurrection. 
It's a road marked with suffering. We'll sing that song later today by Matt Redman. Now, once inside the house at Capernaum, Jesus asked them, what were you discussing out on the road? How did he know? Did he overhear? Did he get it by prophetic insight? Text doesn't tell us, but however he knows, he knows. Friends, you can never keep anything from Jesus. And if we're going to follow the radical Jesus, we've just got to come to grips with this truth. We cannot hide anything from him. We read in the 139th Psalm, for instance, For, O Lord, you have examined my heart, and you know everything about me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You know my thoughts, even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel. You see me when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it, Lord. You go before me and follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too great for me to understand. Now, friends, that truth and this text are both encouraging and terrifying, aren't they? (laughs) I think Jesus meant to encourage that he knows everything, but it can be also a little intimidating to know that you can't hide anything from Jesus. What were they talking about? Well, it certainly wasn't like which one was the most humble servant. They were arguing over who was the greatest. They were jockeying for position in the kingdom headquarters in Jerusalem. They were competing with one another, comparing their gifts, their personality, their temperament, their experiences, their, uh, you know, the packages that, that each of them had. They were, they were watching how each other reacted to Jesus and they were looking for clues about his special favor. Does he favor Peter a little more than John or, or Matthias or, They all wanted positions of of power and influence and recognition. Many of us are made up of the same thing. We would never admit it, but truthfully, we want to be significant in the eyes of people. We want to be perceived as as important, and, and we measure those places of status and responsibility by our wealth or our place and station, our job or our title or our our possessions, our scope of influence, the the number of people we oversee. The list is long. And so Jesus, sighing again, no doubt, is turning their worldly value system upside down with a kingdom object lesson by placing a child in the middle of them. And he said they're to welcome the least, the the littlest, the most insignificant, that is a child. That's the attitude in the kingdom. Now, just a little later on in chapter 10, verses 35 to 45, James and John, still not getting it, are so presumptuous and arrogant that they they actually asked Jesus for a blank check. Teacher, they said, we want you to do us a favor. Well, what's your request, Jesus said. They replied, when you sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and one on your left. Well, the other ten were indignant. And not because they thought James and John were just so carnal compared to them. Rather, they're thinking, how dare they usurp the positions that we want for ourselves? That's why they were mad. So Jesus is now continuing to suffer the failure of the twelve to give up their selfish and self-centered lives for, for and their desire for places of prominence and importance. Jesus continues to suffer the failure of the twelve to fully understand the implications of his kingdom mission. 
It was not a military victory where the generals of the revolting army would be elevated to positions of influence and, and power in the new regime, the glorious throne and, and, and places of honor, as James and John described them. But rather, it's the rule and reign of God invading the lives of men and women and children, dethroning the powers of the kingdom of darkness. That's the mission that they're on. They're not headed to set up headquarters in Jerusalem. Our battle is what Jesus was modeling, invading the lives of of people that are captive by the enemy and releasing them from his grip into the freedom and the peace and the restoration and the healing of his kingdom. So Jesus painstakingly straightened out their crooked thinking with yet another simple and beautiful and powerful description of life in the kingdom in Mark 10, verses uh, 42 to 45. You know that rulers in this world lord it over their people and officials flaunt their authority over them, over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve others and give his life a ransom for many. So the disciples were still thinking about the kingdom in worldly terms. And so Jesus illustrated by saying all leaders in worldly or Gentile institutions, whether it's business or government, education, military or otherwise, he said they'll derive their authority because of their position, their pay or their title. And he said in God's kingdom, those who desire to be great, which is what the 12 were aspiring to be great in the kingdom. He said, you're going to get it by becoming a servant or literally a slave of all. The way up is the way down. The radical Jesus said that in in my kingdom, we gain authority by serving. And so if we want to follow the radical Jesus, then we got to follow his example by becoming a slave to all. Coming to give your life on behalf of others. It's not upward mobility that counts, Jesus was teaching. It's downward mobility that he's calling for. And that's why someone like Mother Teresa or William Booth of Salvation Army history stand out in church history as such stellar examples of Christ-likeness. They gave their lives for the sake of others. So my I-I exam at this point in the story is how am I doing in surrendering my need for significance and importance in the eyes of others and in becoming a servant, a slave to all? Then in the context of this ongoing instruction, John informed Jesus that they saw a man casting out demons in Jesus' name, and they told him to stop because he wasn't one of them, sectarianism. And so now Jesus is suffering the exclusivity of the 12, and they still didn't get it. Jesus had been teaching the 12 uh, through the feeding of the Gentile 4,000, the healing of the Syrian Phoenician woman, the healing of the, of the deaf man with an impediment, that, that uh, it will, and actually now in welcoming this little child, that the kingdom is for all. It is inclusive. It's not exclusive. There were no grounds for trying to define who's in and who's out. Uh, are, are they in? Are they in our camp or, 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 or not? Jesus' heart was no doubt broken. You know, see this bounded set mentality of who's in and who's out. It cuts across the wideness 
of God's mercy in the kingdom. The banquet table in God's kingdom is large, and there's room at the feast for you. Children get in. Gentile outsiders get in. The weak, the lost, the impoverished, the broken, the poor, the demonized, the sick, they get in. There's no, like, exclusivity. It's inclusive. And the point I think that Jesus was making is that God's kingdom expands in surprising and mysterious ways through people that you can never imagine. St. Patrick, of all people, a slave, rescued Ireland from a pagan, idolatrous future and brought Christianity. In the 1950s, God took humble apostolic Christian missionaries named Melvin and Catherine and Huber, and he sent them to Brazil. And they had four children, and at age 26, their oldest son, Luke, moved to the Santo, to Santorim on, on the Amazon River there. And he began a church planting mission. And today, Project Amazon uh, supports a, a thousand church plants with a goal of planting 99,000 more through the humble ministry of Melvin and Catherine Huber. In the middle 1970s, God took a rock and roll record producer named John Wimber, called him out of that business at a friend's small group meeting, and then in the years to follow, uh, launched a worldwide revolution in the way the church worships through John's ministry and later founded the Vineyard. So be very slow to measure and weigh and judge the effectiveness of others, other ministries, about who's having an effect for the kingdom of God and not. Uh, who, who is Jesus using, them or not them? Be very slow to judge. Jesus is the Lord before whom they stand or fall. You know, some today feel it's their job to just fix everybody, straighten everybody out, their theology, their practice, their church, their doctrine, their, their methods, their everything. They exercise their spiritual gift of criticism and fault-finding and can find, like, fault with everything. You know, if you want to know the faults of the vineyard, come talk to me. I'll give you a long list. I'm more aware of them than you are because I'm one of the leaders in the movement. We've got a long list. and uh, The point here is just chill, relax, take Jesus' advice from verse 40 of chapter 9. Anyone who's not against us is for us. And even if they give you a cup of cold water because you belong to the Messiah, I tell you the truth, that person will surely be rewarded. His point is, no good deed done in Jesus' name goes unrewarded. So don't you go judging and valuing and correcting and fixing everything. Let that guy cast the demons out in my name. We're for him. He's blessing the kingdom. Have a wider view. Jesus is not limited by our theology, by our denomination, by our church history, or our pet doctrines about anything. Jesus is big. And let's trust him to be that big. You know, friends, our motto at the Vineyard is going to be and will continue to be, come as you are, you'll be loved. I want that to be true. I want that to be powerfully true. I want our church to look like the kind of place that it would have liked if Jesus was hanging around, where people love to be around him. People of every stripe love to be around him. Come as you are, you'll be loved. There is a wideness in God's mercy. There, there's an inclusivity in God's kingdom. And then we're going to trust Jesus to work out the weeds and the wheat at the harvest at the end of the age. That's his job, not ours. So do I regularly 
judge people as outside the kingdom because of their beliefs and practices? Or is there a wideness in my heart towards how big the radical Jesus really is? Lord, wow. It's just like, if we're honest with the text, it's scary because you are so radical. You require us just to trust you with so much. And we want to. We say, Lord, we believe, but help the parts of us that don't believe. Lord, I, I pray that you would put power on your word to our lives where we're at right now. Lord, come and bring your kingdom in the ways you know each one of us so desperately needs. Help us be followers, authentic, real followers of the radical Jesus. And now, Lord, as we offer up our gifts to you, both in in finances and in song, pray that you'd accept them for what they are, tokens that say we love you. Amen.